of January 2023, and this is the first episode, the introductory episode of Real History. I had an idea a few months ago, back in the late summer, maybe early fall, when I was speaking to a listener of Alan Watt, Cutting Through the Matrix, and he was a, a retired L.A. street cop, and I just listened to him talk. I mean, we both spoke, but it was a couple of hours that he was telling me stories of his time on the street. Specifically, what was interesting to me was how street cops worked with informants and getting into the psychology of criminals and informants, knowing when someone was lying or telling the truth. And he just had a really interesting take on things. And I thought... I've never heard anything like this before. Uh, my, I, I wish I was recording it because I'd like to listen to it again, and I, I think other people might enjoy it too. It just popped in my head that way, and then a little while later I had asked a, a, a friend of mine, a friend of Alan's, who is a German woman living in Canada for many, many years now, if she would 
translate the final minute and a half or two minutes of a film that was made in German by a German filmmaker, Lutz Dombeck, called Overgames. And he was the same filmmaker who did The Net about uh, Ted Kaczynski and LSD and the Internet. So she translated that for me, but then she she said, oh, I, th- I think it really should say this. And as we were communicating back and forth, we just picked up the phone, talked to each other for a little while. And the, the theme behind Overgames was that after World War II, the Germans needed to be re-educated about what had happened during World War II and their part in that. Now, my friend Bridget was born four or five years after the war, maybe even a little bit later than that, but close enough to the war that in her early childhood, when her family left East Germany and moved to West Germany, she had recollections of that. She remembered even traveling out of Germany uh, on an occasion and the attitude that people had towards them, which was not favorable when they discovered that they were German people speaking German. And I thought, oh, this is a conversation. And I, at a certain point, I said, stop, stop. The, you know, let's talk about this when it's fresh and spontaneous and um, record it. So she said, oh, okay. And she's had some technical difficulties. We want to probably Skype together and somehow record a conversation, but that hasn't happened yet. But I kept thinking about the idea, and I remember that Alan spoke with Miss Effie in Louisiana years ago, I believe back in 2006, and she was an an interesting woman, a character really, a single woman who had had a series of jobs, including longshoremen, and she had built her own house herself, saved the money, did a little bit at a time. If she didn't know how to do something, she'd have somebody teach her how to do it. So she was a character, and she'd listen to a little bit of Alan, and they ended up having a three-hour conversation, which he broke into three parts and called it Driving Miss Effie. And so over the holiday and just over the last couple of months, the idea kept coming in my head that it, that the stories that people have are so compelling and interesting, and everyone does seem to have a story, and this is real history. And so I just kept thinking about it, tossing it around in my head, thinking what it would look like, and, and talking to Alan's listeners and finding who out who would want to participate in something like that with me, and it turned out that that quite a handful, certainly enough for me to feel like, okay, I can, I can do this. I can just jump off the cliff and do it. So this is it. Alan talked a lot about the importance of history, obviously. He said, you've got to get in there and read the dusty old books. You have to study. If you don't know what happened before, you don't know what comes next because you're living through a script. And if you study it long enough, you you do understand what is going to happen next. And he, too, really liked the kind of get out there, meet people, have experiences, and learn history in that way. Now, by the time he started 
bringing knowledge and information to you, the listeners, had, that was not his lifestyle anymore because it was pretty much 24-7 devoted to getting the information out there. But in earlier times, that is what he did. He went out into the world and he met people and he listened and he learned from them. And he had little adventures. Once He told me that one time he was by himself on his motorcycle in Scotland, just riding around, and he found a place that he wanted to hike up to in the hills. It was a pretty scenic area, so he got his bike up in a place that seemed secure enough, parked it, and started hiking in the hills. And as he got higher and higher and deeper and deeper into the wooded area, he realized that he was walking on ground that hadn't been trod in many, many years. And he kept going. And in a little overgrown clearing, but a clearing nonetheless, he stumbled on an old church. And he went inside, and it was still intact. And he said it was very old, hundreds of years old. And there were still hymn books. There was still a Bible there. And he studied that the Bible had dates and names from hundreds of years ago. And just this incredible feeling to the place. And there were gravestones around the church. And he studied that. And he, it was, it was a remarkable experience for him because it was a little piece of history that he uncovered. He never told anyone about it. He enjoyed it, soaked it in, and then hiked back down and got on his motorcycle and went on his way. So he was an adventurer in that way. And that was one of the things that, of course, when I was there, I was also 24-7 into the information, the research, and everything that had to be done. So that wasn't my life either, but I've always loved road trips and, you know, adventures and and traveling. And I I come by some of the things that I shared in common with Alan, you know, naturally, I guess, in that I inherited them from my parents. My father was always on the go. He was a man with many, many interests, and he just loved to travel. He collected postcards, which I'll come back to later, the significance of that. But he he had stacks of photographs and postcards of everywhere he went. And this was perfect for my mother because my mother really was a historian and she taught history and music and she loved history, specifically British and Scottish, Irish, um, English, and American history because that was the heritage of our family. And my father liked it from the point of view that he had been into genealogy for years and years. My grandmother raised him by herself because when she was a young mother, she had six children and her husband was a a mechanic And he was electrocuted when my father, the youngest, was three months old. So she was left with six children between the ages of 14 down to three months. And she was an industrious, hardworking, God-fearing woman. And she did a good job by all of her children. They all went to college or university and um, 
married and had big families. And that's another thing I noticed, too, in studying both my mother and father's side of the family is there were lots of children there who had lots of children, and they got to us, and, you know, across the board, mom and dad's side, just not much um, in the way of leaving children behind. The family dies out, and that is, that's the agenda. That's the modern way. But my dad loved studying uh, the ancestry of his family, and I think a big reason for that was that he didn't have a father, and it, family was incredibly important to him. And he even published a book on genealogy of the family. So that is a little bit about that. And I, I say this because one of the, you know, Alan talked about history and oral history and how the only, the only real history, because his story, history, is always given to us by the victors. It's given to us by those who conquer and rule and control. And it's skewed and it it's sanitized. And when you live through it, when you take note of the experiences that you have and the people that you meet, it's very different. And that is real history. Now, I want to say before I go further that if you want the true real history then you must go to www.cuttingthroughthematrix.com and take advantage of archives of Alan Watt and thousands of talks and interviews that he's done over the years because that is real history. He devoted his life to studying history and understanding why things happened and how and who did it. So... But he would say, you know, a bard, the storyteller, could be someone who was, you know, patronized. He worked for the ruling class, and he told the stories, the histories that the ruling class really wanted to hear. So these were the first sanitized versions of history. But he also talked about, in the highlands of Scotland, the traveling man would have to carry with him in his head the oral history of his clan, sometimes going back you know, a couple of hundred years, and each clan would have the man who was the repository of the history, and he would know, okay, I've checked at his, his version of that clan's history, it checks against what I know, so he's safe, he's probably not a spy. Alan also talked about the the role that women, the, the matriarchs of the family, had in in passing down oral history of the family. And like I say, you know, sadly, our line is a dying out line, but um, I am still interested in, in history and passing down history, and I'm interested in, you know, everybody's history and, and my own too. I was thinking when I was getting ready to, to talk um, today about a story that I had heard through my childhood that supposedly my great-grandmother, I thought that it was my grandmother's mother, had shot and killed a man because he came on her property and and stole some chickens. But my 93-year-old aunt, she lives two blocks away from me now, and uh, or now that I'm back here, 
So I called her up and I said, tell me again, uh, did Mima's mother kill a man for coming on the property and stealing chickens during the Depression and they were all starving? So my, my aunt said, it wasn't during the Depression. It was in the 1890s and they weren't starving. They had food. But the man shouldn't have been on there stealing from them. And it wasn't chickens, it was pigs. So they, they raised pigs. And it wasn't, there were two men that had been going around the area and they'd been stealing pigs and chickens and whatever, livestock from people. And this was the third time that the man had come on the property. And she picked up a, a long, she called it a long gun. He, he picked up a long gun and killed one of the men the other one got away but they knew the authorities knew who it was and nobody ever said anything to her because you just don't go on somebody's property and steal pigs and she said it also it wasn't Mima's mother it was it was my uh my father's mother and then she launched into a story she said Mima's mother was from and I love the way she said it you know she doesn't say Louisiana she said Louisiana and I said, stop, stop. No, I, I have to record this. And uh, she, she said, what? And I said, no, this is great. Tell me the story. Tell me what you just told me, not about, you, you know, your, not about your father's mother, but tell me the story about your mother's mother and what happened to her. So she just spoke on the phone. I held it up to the microphone, and I'm about to play it for you. Mama's mama was from Louisiana, and her her mother and daddy had died when she was very young. They were they had typhoid fever or yellow fever or something. And um, a lot of people died. Well she had no mother and daddy and she lived with some distant relative and uh, they treated her just like a slave and made her work in the fields in the cotton fields and she didn't hardly have any nice dresses or clothes and her she only had one brother had no sisters and the brother he went to he went to east texas and he did real good he made a lot of money and he went back to louisiana and got her and took her to East Texas. They had a, a big farm and they had a lot of timber and they cut lumber. He had a lot of money and he made real good. I love these kinds of things. I love history and I love meeting people and I love hearing their stories. And as this idea just kept kicking around in my head over Christmas. I traveled across a few states to help someone. And because I like the adventure and I like the history, I tried to make the, the drive back for myself interesting. I don't want to drive too much in one day anyway. And so I stopped and looked around and kind of took the sights in. And one of the things, I got a, an attraction map in uh, Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, just to see what was nearby. 
and I really sparked to wanting to see something called the Sloss Furnaces National Historic Landmark. It said Sloss is a 32-acre blast furnace plant where iron was made for nearly a hundred years. Sloss is the only 20th century blast furnace in the country being preserved and interpreted as a museum. It said additional interest at Sloss is the speculation that the furnaces are haunted by a former foundryman. Now, as it turns out, the place where I stayed overnight in Birmingham had been turned into a kind of a chain lower-end hotel and but it was in an old building, uh, and I read about it. They certainly didn't tell me this at the front desk, but I read that it was supposedly haunted by Major, I forgot Major's last name now, but it, anyway, it was a, a haunted hotel. And I, uh, unfortunately, I was not able to see the Sloss Furnaces because they didn't open up until 10 in the morning. And I just couldn't hang out in that area. There was also the Tannehill Ironworks Historical State Park. That was another old ironworks and collection of 19th century buildings to give visitors a glimpse into life in Alabama in the 1800s. Well, I did get a chance to go to the Birmingham Public Library, which was right across the street from where I was staying it was open earlier, and the main part of the library that you entered was a modern glass kind of ugly building, but it was connected on a walkway across to the original library, which was a pretty old building, and you were supposed to have an appointment to visit it. These were places where historians would go or writers who were researching something, and it was state-by-state state histories of small towns and small areas uh, all across the South. But they were nice enough to let me wander about for a while. And it was also a um, well-known library for having a huge genealogy archive. So, And it houses literally thousands of families' genealogies, you know, self-published books and just records of people who have lived in, in the South for many, many generations. And I got to pick up a few books and look at inter just interesting things, you know, how much uh, provisions a family might purchase on a trip into town, you know, how many pounds of flour and how many um, eggs and that kind of thing. And by the way, <laughs> Eggs just popped into my mind. I read today that eggs are uh, going up, and they said if you th if you've noticed that eggs are going up in price, uh, it's because of the continued uh, bird flu, and that's the main thing. But it's also supply chain and everything else. And I thought to myself, well, no, it's really because any reasonably cheap or affordable form of protein they want to remove from uh, you know. Of easy availability, make it more and more expensive. And I had just gone grocery shopping last evening, so I had noticed myself the price of eggs. But back to the library, I was not able to go to these ironworks, and so I just got back on the road, and I, my next big stop was in Vicksburg in Mississippi. I wanted to see some of the old houses, and I kept looking for some of these antebellum, which are the pre-Civil War houses that I might tour, but 
I was either coming into an area too late or getting up too early or it just it didn't work out. But I seemed to arrive at the Vicksburg National Military Park right before closing. Maybe it was about an hour before closing. And I will tell you that along the way, this is where the postcards come in. Along the way of my trek, I kept trying to buy postcards to add to Dad's collection. Um, he's no longer here, but his postcards certainly are. And nobody had them, even in historic places or museums or places that I visited that I that had other things in a gift shop. They just don't sell them anymore because nobody sends postcards. They don't go to the post office and buy stamps. And, you know, if they're going to memorialize a trip or an event or a place that they saw, they're going to do it on Facebook or other social media. And that's just the way it is. So I... I it was not able to, you know, finally, finally at the Vicksburg National Military Park, I got some postcards. I was very excited about that. But I had gone down to the gate. It was a driving tour that you did through the memorial. I'd gone to the gate where the person would be there, that you would pay money to him. You know, one of those little gatehouses. And he opens up his window. He slides his window open. And he says, hi, the entrance to the park is $5 or whatever. And you give him your $5, and then he opens up the gate and you drive in. Well, at the gift shop, they said, oh, no, no, the that, that gatehouse, there's nobody there anymore. We don't take cash, and the only way that you can do this is to buy your pass online and have and scan your QR code. And I thought, well, there you are. There you are. All of these wars that we have fought for freedom, for, for, you know, to be left alone from tyrants. And you can't use cash. And even the house, the gatehouse where they took the cash is now part of the museum. It's not functioning. <laughs> it's just, no, you, you got your QR code and it magically will let you into the park if you have scanned it properly. Well, anyway, I didn't visit the park. But I did think for a little bit about what Alan always talked about when, he, when he'd speak about the offshoring of our manufacturing so here I am in one little town, and they've made museums, they've made monuments to industry, but the industry is not there. And certainly in some parts of the South, it's very clear to see the devastation that the loss of industry has caused. The effects are still really in effect. But I remembered that Alan said when... All of this is done. All of these trading blocks are set up and there's no longer any manufacturing in your country. Then what you will have is tourism and you'll have people who sit by the side of the road selling beads. And that was an illustration that he made a few times. And I thought to myself on my little trek back home that America has just been turned into one big museum. That's what it is. It's it's sad. I mean, it is interesting if you like history. You know, you can learn in environments like that. But what you are learning about is something that 
is so long gone and it is never coming back. So the timing finally worked out in Tyler, Texas for me to be able to stop and see a big house. So I I saw the Goodman house, which was on a hill. Alan used to talk about the people who lived on a hill or on the hill. They are the people who've made it and they get to look down on everybody else. So I went through the house and this was a family who also had run out of heirs. Their line had finished. One of the young women died of malaria. There were, there were yeah, children who died young. They just didn't carry on the line. So the last survivor, Sally, left the house in 1939 to the city of Tyler with the stipulation that the house and all of its contents would be turned into a museum and kept as a museum. So I toured through it and saw all of the first edition books and the clothes and everything intact. It was, it was beautiful and eerie at the same time. And there on the wall hung a, a painting of Sally. It was a different kind of paint than we're accustomed to seeing. And because it was unfinished, it had a blue sheen to it. And it was fitting that it was unfinished because she commissioned it for her husband. And he died, and she didn't want to have it done. She didn't want to have it finished. So it hangs there really rather ghostly. And as well-maintained as the house is, that is the, the effect. It's ghostly because people no longer live there. It's a museum. But I stumbled on a few interesting things besides the first edition books. They're in a, a, a glass-covered cabinet. There was a a poem called Old Tom that was written by Dr. W.J. Goodman, the man who had built the house, the man who had served in the Civil War and become a doctor and served the city of Tyler as a doctor and made a lot of money. And he wrote a poem, date unknown, called Old Tom. Poor old Tom, faithful cat, who in his best and palmy days dealt out death to mouse and rat and amused us all with antic ways. But as years rolled o'er his hoary head, and palsy struck both body and limbs, as he lives around us, almost dead, our sympathies and hearts go out for him. Yes, faithful friend, we love you still, although your useful days are past. We'll care for you in all good will, and feed and nurse you to the last. And I think the things that Some of the things I was thinking as I walked through the house is that, again, everybody has a story to tell that, you know, poor people, rich people, people in between, they go through life, they love, they die, and some of them leave no people behind. Rarely are we gifted with a museum of artifacts of someone's life that we can go through, but it's kind of cool when we can. But there at the door, going out the by the by the front door, you could see it either on your way out or on your way in, but there was there was Dr. W. J. Goodman's collection of medical books and his stethoscope and some other odds and ends of his medical practice. And tucked in there so that you could barely see it 
was his Masonic emblem. And that was the only sign in the house that Dr. Goodman was a Mason. But there you go, the Goodman house, the people who lived on the hill. So real history, those are the times that we're living through. That's what's happening to us right now. And on my trip, I purchased a a little book that I thought, well, I'll read it at night before I go to sleep, just something different. I mean, it's not as if I didn't have enough books to choose from, but I always like to indulge in the little guilty pleasure of the travel book. And the travel book that I picked was by Patrick Radden Keefe, and it's called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. And the Sacklers are a family who started Purdue Pharma way back in the 40s. They had started their pharmaceutical enterprise. It is a really interesting read, a very interesting slice of history, but so sad because I know that you recall, you know, especially the longtime listeners that Alan has covered the Oxycontin, basically the flooding of all kinds of drugs across the world, but in 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 particular, what a devastation Oxycontin has caused to many places in the United States. And that is the drug that the Sackler family manufactured with Purdue Pharma. It's a very well-written book, and he acknowledges, you know, he's he's standing on the shoulders in a way of other journalists who came before him and covered this story that just kept going on as more and there was more and more fallout, more and more harm being done by this. He made a really interesting connection that I hadn't thought about. Now, as I say, Alan has covered this with, he's linked several times and I just did recently, probably a couple of months ago to a documentary film called Oxiana. And this is how Oxycontin has created just devastation. It's like scorched earth wherever that has been. And he also, at the same time, put up another documentary made for a mainstream television network. And I don't remember the name. It's, uh, you know, one of those talking heads that's been around forever. I think it might be, oh, it doesn't really matter. Um, but she is covering the devastation of poverty and drugs in Appalachia which was where she was from, and she's talking about this. And Alan had linked to that quite a bit. So they're showing the fallout there. So there's two points I'll make here. The the first is that this author in Empire of Pain made this fascinating connection, which is finally, after two decades of absolute devastation, the Purdue Pharma came up with a supposedly tamper-proof Oxycontin pill. The result of this was that the people who had become addicted to it had a harder time with that tamper-proof pill. And he makes a compelling case that what happened next was not that people recovered and, and quit being addicted, but they went to heroin 
and from heroin onto fentanyl. And these things are even, if you, you know, the, the devastation is just magnified each step from her, you know, from Oxycontin to heroin to fentanyl. And on the trip, I had the opportunity to meet a woman, a friend of a friend, uh, so not a total stranger. I, I'd never met her before, but, you know, I had that, that introduction there. And I was talking about the book that I was reading. Just, you know, we were chit-chatting in a way that was hopefully not too deep or painful for her or me. Um, because, you know, if you speak to someone that, doesn't know what is going on in the world of reality as Alan Watt has explained it to us. You want to be careful and considerate of what they may or may not know or understand. But I told her that I was reading this book and she said, my sister died of an Oxycontin overdose and she was a nurse and she had been injured and they gave her the Oxycontin, and she became addicted to it. Now, there were two things that were interesting about that exchange. First of all, it was heartbreaking. And the woman who was more or less, you know, kind of quiet and reserved, this was the most that she spoke and shared, the most impassioned that she became during the whole you know, several exchanges over a you know, significant enough period of time. She was just devastated by the loss of her sister and very angry about what had happened. And it, it reinforced what this author had said because the, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma had, had knowingly advertised Oxycontin as something that really was virtually impossible to become addicted to. And as that quickly proved not to be the case, they their claim was that the people who were becoming addicted to it were just addictive personalities. They weren't good people, um, but people people who really had pain, who were really using the pill to manage the pain, they weren't becoming addicted. And that wasn't true. And it wasn't true for this woman's sister who died. So it was it was kind of heartbreaking to have this piece of history confirmed in, in such a vivid way for me. And the other point about Appalachia and those two documentaries and the people that live in those areas is that my family on both sides are from the South, all across the South, and the the feeling of Appalachia, the topography, particularly the music, that, that bluegrass, that hillbilly music, just it strikes such a deep place in me. And the people that live there are, have, you know, historically been primarily of uh, Scottish, and Irish, English descent. And I remember talking to Alan one time about that area, and he said that the music there always felt in a way to have been derived from the music that he knew 
in Scotland as a child and the Celtic music that it was there there was definitely an ancestral bond in there and I was thinking um, last night about music I was thinking about music and how music is an interesting way to convey history that you can tell a story in a song form and it, it really imprints it in your mind. But then I thought, well, some of the most vivid ways that music has been used to tell history is, of course, the songs of war and battle. I was born in the Dublin street where the loyal drums do beat And the loving English people walked all over us And every single night when the would come home straight He'd invite the neighbours out with his chorus Come out, you black and tans, come out and fight me like a man Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders Tell her how the IRA made you run like hell away to just listen to some of these songs and some of the songs of the Easter Rebellion in Ireland. Nobody did harm nobody. 
The Civil War in America. Come, all ye valiant soldiers, a story I will tell about the bloody battle that was fought on Shiloh Hill. And you even one there about the Alamo, which is here in Texas. In the southern part of Texas, in the town of San Antonio, is a fortress all in ruins that the weeds have overgrown. You may look in vain for crosses and you'll never see a one But sometimes between the setting and the rising of the sun You can hear a ghostly bugle as the men go marching by You can hear them as the answer to their roll call in the sky So I was listening to all of these songs and thinking that you know, well, I can't play them all in a podcast because it's copyright, and but maybe I can play just a little clip, and then I can give links and, you know, tell you what it is, and, and that I will do. But it occurred to me, oh, it would be nice to have some bumper music at the beginning and end of this podcast. And because my head was in Appalachia, I started to look at bluegrass music. stumbled on a family called the Marshall family and I just loved him I mean it's, it was just great it was bluegrass gospel I said oh these these would be great or parts of them would just be great for the bumper music for the intro and the exit music of this I oh I, I love it love it but you know it was, at this point it was one o'clock in the morning and I'm going to record today and I don't have permission to use it. And I, uh, so I'm looking, you know, the Marshall family, there's not much that I can find out about them except they burst on the bluegrass scene in 1974. And they released three albums between then and 1977. And they disbanded. It was a father and his two sons and his daughter. And uh, he played banjo beautifully and the daughter played the guitar. She wrote some of the music. And I loved it, and then I saw it was associated with something called Rebel Records. So I went on the Rebel Records site, read the little bit of a bio they had on the Marshall family, and I scrolled down to the bottom. It said, contact us. And it just looked like such a, I don't know any other way to say it, but a, a loving family business. Uh, people who just loved this kind of music and had devoted generations, you know, at least two generations, maybe three, to the 
pr- promotion and preservation of this kind of music. And there was their email. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to send them an email. It's one o'clock in the morning. I'm going to tell them what I'm doing. And I'm going to ask permission to use these songs. And let's just see. So I described what I wanted to do and that I wanted to use the songs. And I said, you know, and I, I guess I could play 10 seconds. You might be able to get away with 10 seconds without permission. But I love this music. And and may I please use them? And I got an email back from them today by noon, giving me permission to use those two songs and wishing me luck and with the, the new podcast. So thank you, Rebel Records. And I did decide to go ahead and let both songs play in their entirety but I think over the next week, I will probably cut, you know, a proper size bumper for the beginning and the end of the, the show, something that's just, you know, normal size intro. But I hope that you enjoy those pieces and everything else that I've clipped for you on this talk. So that is it. The format is not going to be me talking every week. Thank goodness. It is going to be me having a conversation with someone and hopefully that someone is going to do the bulk of the talking and they will share their real history. And next week, um, Faith in Canada has agreed to talk with me and I'm really excited about this conversation. Faith is a, a, a lovely woman. She's been a, a long-time listener to Alan Watts, Cutting Through the Matrix. And she had shared with me last year and in subsequent emails something that had happened to her at her church regarding her vaccine status. And I thought, oh, this the, this is real history. And these are the stories that need to be shared week in and week out. So I'm looking forward to next Thursday bringing you Faith from Canada. So in closing, that is what this is. Maybe it's my little time capsule. Um, Maybe in a way it's just an ongoing tribute to all of the amazing things that I learned from Alan Watt and I continue to learn because he really cared about people and people's stories and people's lives because it is heartbreaking when you understand that this agenda isn't just some kind of on paper, oh, it's happening and they're going forward one step at a time. No, it's it has been happening all of our lifetimes and there's tremendous heartbreaking heartbreaking fallout. There's another listener in Scotland when I I posted a few weeks ago, reposted a talk that Alan had done when he touched on drug use in Glasgow. And, you know, basically every year or any year, Glasgow just tops the list of cities in Europe where drug abuse is a huge, huge problem. And I, I received an email back from someone who lives in that area of the world. 
And he said, oh, yes, it, it is bad, and it's worse than that. It's, he said, I, I'm guessing that he is a youngish man. I'm, I'm not sure how old he is, but I'd, I'd say maybe 30, maybe even younger. And he said that of 30 to 40 young men that he came up with, so coming up with somebody, that's going to be from your very early childhood days through school, whatever, you know, your lifetime, but 30 to 40 young men that he knew had died of heroin overdose. So it feels right now, it certainly feels that in these last three years, we've been under sustained attack of the absolute worst kind, and we have been. But as I said, and as Alan always pointed out, this is a, it's an ancient agenda and it's an ongoing war and we're in this phase of it right now. But we are humans and we are capable of compassion and love and sharing what we have with other people, giving people a glimpse into the lives of others so that they can feel the kind of vicarious joy or sadness. They can empathize with loss and loneliness. And that's where I'm going with this. I can't promise you that it will have a rigid format because I'm kind of a last-minute type of person. I've spent most of the last two weeks trying to figure out the new technology to do this. And I just kind of threw up my hands. I will get it eventually, but I was trying, you know, I've got, I've got this program and then I've got this program. I can patch in the collar and then this is a virtual mixer. And then this is the um, component of it. That's my noise gate. And that gets rid of all that hissy background. And, and I just went right back to the basics after even trying again this morning, you know, it's like three or four hours of, well, try, don't give up, you know, just keep at it. And so here I am with the very simplest little program, just recording my voice. And I, you know, hopefully I'll get better at podcast technology that lets me be interactive with people. But uh, for today, it's me and the mic. And I thank you for listening and I hope that you will join me next week to hear me talk with Faith in Canada. Thank you. Have a good night. Well, I've got something that the world didn't give me And the world cannot take it away And I've got something Well, I've got something that the world didn't give me.
Take it away. Oh, oh, oh. 